I want to begin this afternoon by first with a word of personal thanks to you and this congregation for extending the call to me to minister in your midst and, and through your church to the world at large as well. Um, it probably is impossible to find the words, at least words that I can utter without breaking into tears, that will express my thanks for your confidence and for your uh, calling me to do that. But this afternoon I want to preach about another kind of thanks. I'd like to speak about Paul's expression in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 where he says, Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. Last um, summer, I worked through a series with um, the study center in Orange County. Some of the people here worshiping today were in attendance. Um, it was, uh, what, about nine or ten weeks of dealing with Isaiah chapter 55, where the prophet declares in God's name, my thoughts are above your thoughts and my ways are above your ways. And the series was on mystery, wonder, and awe, that aspect of the Christian faith that really uh, goes beyond our rationality and deals with the incomprehensibility of God. In the process of preparing that series, as most preachers do, if you do any homework, you find there's just more than you can really handle. And one of the texts that I wish I would have been able to cover then, and I decided this afternoon now to finally make up for that deficiency, is found in 2 Corinthians, the ninth chapter. Please turn with me in your Bibles then to 2 Corinthians 9, the text I'll be preaching on is the 15th verse, thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. But to put it in context, I need to read chapter 9 for you. And to put that in context, we need to say a few words about what 2 Corinthians is all about. If you knew anything about the occasion of the writing of the book of 2 Corinthians, you would probably be amazed in and of itself that Paul could have time to say thanks to God for anything. And things were not looking real good. Things were not looking good in Paul's ministry there at Corinth. And, of all things, the people in Corinth had been uh, really organized against Paul by his detractors, by some false teachers and other leaders that had come into the congregation. In fact, this is for you Bible students. You may want to know the book of 2 Corinthians is, in fact, not 2 Corinthians. I hate to disabuse you of that. If you want to talk about the letters Paul sent to Corinth, this is actually his fourth letter to Corinth. If you want to do the, sometime we'll have a Bible study, I can do all the detective work for you and put that together. And what we call 1 Corinthians is not his first letter either, it's his second. Because in his first letter, what we call his first letter, which is really his second letter, he makes reference to a first letter that's already been sent, and that's why you know that the first is only the second. Okay? But then when we come to what we call the second, which can't be the second, it would have to at least be the third, Paul talks about an intervening letter, a letter that was very sorrowful to him, a very painful letter that doesn't match in any way the character or contents of 1 Corinthians. And so we know that there was another letter that he sent after what we call 1 Corinthians, what I've already told you was 2 Corinthians. And so this is not 3 Corinthians, we're reading actually 4 Corinthians, okay? Only two letters by God's providence end up in the canon of the New Testament that God gives to his people in all ages for their edification. But for historical purposes, you need to know this is the fourth time now Paul has written. And what has occasioned his writing is 
rather ugly. It's, it's not pleasant at all. Paul had evangelized this area, had seen the church at Corinth founded. This church came from the dregs of society. In fact, if you knew the Corinthian reputation in the ancient world, and you read that Paul says, God hasn't called many honorable among your society into the church. He's called the despised and the rejected of men. You have some idea of what kind of people, what kind of converts Paul was dealing with. There were lots of problems. Easily they fell into faction and argument. They fell into heresy, into sexual immorality. It was just incredible. Well, so Paul writes to them, 1 Corinthians, a letter that doesn't have the same kind of character and ethos to it. But as he leaves, apparently some that Paul had even invited into the ministry of the church had turned against him personally. And they began to attack him. And not just his office, but his person. Paul made an emergency trip to Corinth. He talks about having come. He says, I don't want to come again and have to be severe with you. I've been there once to take care of a problem. He writes a sorrowful letter following that having to do with the factions that are there and this party that had risen up against Paul himself in his apostolic position. And then he sends Titus, and he wants Titus to find out the state of the church. And Paul is so eager to find out, so distressed over what might be the case at Corinth, that he leaves Ephesus where he wrote the first epistle. He goes to Troas, and he's going to intercept Titus on his way back from Corinth to find out what's going on. And when Titus doesn't show up, then Paul's even more anxious, and he goes on to Macedonia so he can intercept him even closer to Corinth. And there he gets from Titus the news, which is kind of a mixed blessing. It, uh, it's good news in that Paul has called on the congregation to discipline those who had been opposing him. And the church has done that. And for this, he gives his thanks to God. The bad news is there's a significant minority in the church that are still against him, that are still working havoc in the church, and still questioning his person and his office. And so when you read through 2 Corinthians, it's perhaps the most autobiographical of all of Paul's epistles in the New Testament. It's a very pained epistle. Paul later in the epistle will have to go to talking about his own ministry and what God has done in his life. And you can tell Paul despises having to do that. He doesn't want to have to defend himself and to talk about what God has done for him just as a way of showing that he really does have a ministry from God. And so when he talks about some really wondrous things that happened, he, he talks about somebody that he knew. He talks about himself in the third person. He goes, I knew a man once who was caught up into the third heaven, and he saw things that were so wonderful. We're going to look at that text in a few moments ourselves. Paul is reduced to talking about how he has suffered, how he's been willing to take a stand for Christ and even give up his life in behalf of his ministry. That's the kind of epistle this is. And of all the things that his opponent said about him, that was perhaps low and insidious about his own character, was that Paul was lining his own pockets through his ministry. The suggestion was made that Paul was collecting money from the saints in Jerusalem and perhaps he was getting wealthy off of it. And so in chapters 8 and 9, 
Paul returns to the theme of collecting money for those who are in the midst of famine in Jerusalem. And he says, you made a, big, a, a good beginning. And in fact, I even boasted about you, about how you were making this collection for the saints, and I want to call you to finish that task. And so, sorry for the long, long, long introduction, but now to narrow it down, that brings us to chapter 9, which I want to read for you as our text, and then we'll take as the specific verse, the very last uh, expression used by Paul in what we call the ninth chapter. Hear then God's word. There's no need for me to write to you about this service to the saints, for I know your eagerness to help, and I've been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year you and Achaia were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. But I am sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready as I said you would be. For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one begrudgingly given. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion, and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And thus far the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. The King James Version and the American Standard Version both say, thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. I've already told you, I think it's amazing that Paul would have time to make any passing illusion of glorifying God in the midst of these troubled circumstances. But as Paul thinks about the generosity of God's people and what he's calling them to do to help other Christians in need, he thinks automatically of the generosity and the goodness and the grace of God, which is the background and the foundation and the fountain from which all of our generosity flows. And so as Paul sometimes does in his epistles, he will just give a passing doxology or a word of thanks. It's like if you were an English teacher, you might want to say, Paul, when you get down to that section of the paper, you can deal with this, but right now you're on something else. 
Paul can't stick to those kind of limits. When Paul starts thinking about what God has done, every once in a while he just has to cry out and say, Thank you, God. You ever feel that way? I'm going to encourage you to violate what your English teachers taught you and to be more like Paul. Sometimes we ought to just say, Thank God. I am so thankful what he's done for me. Here Paul says, Thank God for his unspeakable gift. The Revised Standard Version says his inexpressible gift. The New Testament, according to Eastern texts, that's one you all use often, right? The New Testament, according to Eastern texts, says his incomparable gift. Today's English version, his priceless gift, his indescribable gift, the NIV, which I read for you just a moment ago, as well as the New American Standard Version and the translations by Goodspeed and Phillips, or the New English Bible is pretty nice too. It says, for his gift beyond words. All these different translations, but it all comes down to this ironic expression where Paul says, I'd like to speak to you about what is unspeakable. I am now talking about something which, in fact, can't be talked about because it is unspeakable. The Bible sometimes has those kind of ironies we have to deal with. Uh, the Bible deals with visual irony when in Romans, the first chapter, verse 20, Paul says that the invisible things of God are clearly seen through the created order. <laughs> you get used to reading that, then you don't feel the bumps and grind, you know, of what Paul's saying. But, I mean, that should stop you in your tracks. What do you mean? The invisible things are clearly seen. If they're invisible, they're not seen at all, much less clearly. But, you see, Paul puts it that way because he's trying to make a point. And he excuse me, in, in Hebrews, the 11th chapter, verse 27, we read of Moses that he was willing to undergo uh, persecution uh, for the people of God and for the glory of God as someone who had seen the invisible. Had seen the invisible? There's a paradox for you. Well, in the same way, this is what Paul gives us in 2 Corinthians 9.15. He gives us a parable. He says, thanks be to God... I want to say something about what cannot be said. Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. And you will not have thought of Ludwig Wittgenstein, but I did when I ran across this and was thinking about preaching today. When I went off to college, out of, uh, fresh out of high school, I didn't know who Ludwig Wittgenstein was. And after my college education and seminary and graduate school, I probably know more about Wittgenstein other than Augustine, I suppose, than any other philosopher in the history of Western thought. Ludwig Wittgenstein, you don't need to know a whole lot about him, but I'd like to share with you briefly about his early career where Wittgenstein had certain strict doctrines about human language and what was meaningful in human expression. This um, treatise that he wrote was not submitted by himself as a doctoral dissertation. He had people with such reputations as G.E. Moore and Bertrand Russell submit it for him, and he was granted a doc his doctorate in England for it. And the title was The Tractatus Philosophicus. What are we going to do with language that doesn't talk about the here and now, what you can touch, what you can verify with your senses? Wittgenstein concludes, it's meaningless language. Anything that talks about which goes beyond my 
experience in this world, what I can observe or deals with logic, is meaningless. Well, Wittgenstein was a good enough philosopher to realize by the time he got to the end of the development of six of his propositions that now he had really ruled out all of the language he had been using in the book, too. Because he wasn't talking about things that you could touch or just the uh, tautologies of logic and so forth. And so what does Wittgenstein end up doing? The book is an English translation just short of 90 pages, maybe 80 pages long. In 79 of those 80 pages, if I can speak in round terms, round numbers, 79 a round number? He has developed six of his propositions at great length to give a proposition that he analytically divides it, divides that, divides, divides, and so you have this analytical outline, all these subpoints, one after another. When he comes to Proposition 7, however, it's only one sentence long. The whole book is six propositions, 79 pages worth, and then seven, the conclusion, is one sentence, and this is the sentence, my free German translation. Whereof we cannot speak, thereof we must be silent. Wittgenstein had ruled himself out of order. He had written an entire dissertation that proved that he couldn't write the dissertation that he had just written. And so he said, if we can't speak of it, then we will not speak of it. And he was silent. And he went off to the Black Forest for years and was not heard of. Until we have the, re, you know, Wittgenstein too comes back, you know. We have <laughs> son of Wittgenstein. He said, but it's, it's Wittgenstein himself. Well, we don't want to know more than we have to about this guy. He's, he's probably wasting your time. But now notice what he says here. Whereof we cannot speak, thereof we must be silent. If you can't speak of something, then you can't speak of it. And so, don't bother. So if we were to follow the um, dictum of Wittgenstein, when we come across Paul saying, thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift, he'd say, okay, that's it for today. Can't talk about it. It's unspeakable. Whereof you cannot speak, thereof you must be silent. But you know, the New Testament is full of things which, according to its own testimony, are inexpressible. The New Testament broaches things repeatedly that are said to be beyond human expression. I just want to give you a few examples for you to mull over this afternoon when you go home. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and the 8th verse. 1 Peter 1.8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You are filled with a joy beyond words, a joy that cannot be expressed. Or in 2 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, back in the epistle that we're looking at this afternoon, Paul himself, when he talks about his own experiences, what God has graced him with and blessed him with, and he puts it in the third person, he says, I know a man who had these experiences. 
says that this person, referring to himself, was caught up into the third heaven. And in first, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 4, he says, this person who was caught up, he, didn't, he doesn't even know if it was in his body or not, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. Now that one's not quite as challenging because the second expression helps explain the first. They are inexpressible or unutterable because it's not allowed that these things should be said. They are too sacred to express. With a lot of speculation among theologians as to what that might have been. Of course, they shouldn't speculate about that because it's too sacred to express. But Paul heard these things. That's the kind of exalted experience he had, what we might call even a mystical experience with the Lord, that he was caught up into paradise and heard these things which he does not have permission to speak. Christian faith often refers to the inexpressible. Inexpressible joy, unspeakable words that are too sacred to talk about. In Romans 11, verse 33, Paul talks about how unsearchable are the judgments of God and his ways past tracing out. They're just unsearchable. Last week I was doing some elder training in theology at a church in Chatsworth, and I was talking about the attributes of God. One of the, what we call, incommunicable attributes of God, and those attributes that he does not share um, with the creature, those are unique to him. One of the incommunicable attributes of God is his infinity. God has the perfections which we have, but he has them in infinite degree. And I was trying to explain to these elders, uh, it led us, you know, into a moment of praise, uh, ourselves, even though we're supposed to be doing some theological study, I guess that's okay. What I was trying to explain to them, and it's hard for us to get it into our minds, is that if God is infinite in perfection and infinite in glory, that means you don't have to worry about what you're going to be doing for all eternity in heaven. Because when you think you have said everything you can about the greatness and majesty and glory of God, you still haven't whittled any of it off. It's infinite. You know, the seraphim sing holy, 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 day and night throughout all eternity. We are going to praise God, and in his infinite perfection, we will never run out of things to say. I mean, you can't imagine that. I can't imagine, I'm, I'm a writer sometimes. I'm a writer, and I get tired of writing. But just imagine if I wrote my entire lifetime on only one thing, and that's the glory of God. My entire life, and that would be not even a drop in the bucket of eternity of what we're going to be doing. Does that give you some idea how great God is? He's infinite in his perfection. Paul says, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past tracing out unfathomable. You can't get to the bottom of them. You see, understanding the Christian message, understanding the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, should overwhelm us. That's why Paul could, in the midst of this epistle, just cry out, thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. Paul says, I'm just bowled over. 
I can't put it in words. Regardless of how much we master the system, regardless of how many details we get under our belt, the gospel should never stop overwhelming us because the Christian faith never loses its depth and its wonder. In that sense, the Christian faith always has about it a sense of the mystical. Now, not mystical in the Eastern sense. You know, the Eastern cultures and the Eastern religions have really messed up what the Bible talks about as wonder and awe. And we talked about this in our summer class. Some of you who were there will remember. Because, you see, for something to be mystical means for it to be contradictory, to be not just incomprehensible, but inapprehensible. No one can make sense out of it. The Bible's not talking about the mystical in that way at all. What it's saying is God is so great you cannot comprehend his greatness. You can never draw a circle around it. It goes beyond anything that you can think or say. Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. Paul says, thank you, God, for giving a gift which I can't even put words on. It is so deep, it is so wondrous, it is so mystical. Think about some other places in the New Testament like this. Real quickly, the book of Ephesians contains quite a few of them. So let's just look at it. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7. Ephesians 2, 7. Paul says, on the contrary, they saw that I had been... Well, we've got to go to Ephesians here, pardon me. Ephesians 2, 7 now in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Incomparable. The Greek word means to excel or to uh, surpass that which goes beyond anything ordinary. It's the extraordinary riches of his grace. Look at Ephesians 3.8. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Here's Paul searching the unsearchable, preaching that which cannot be comprehended, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Literally, the Greek is that which cannot be fathomed, cannot be traced out, the inscrutable riches. Or Ephesians 3, verse 19, has another expression like that. To know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Those of us who are interested in things philosophical, I think do well to pay attention to Ephesians 3.19 because here Paul talks about something which is so good and so lasting and so great and glorious that it surpasses knowledge. It surpasses our ability to put human terms to it. That doesn't mean that the human terms God has given to describe it are inaccurate. It's just to say they don't come to the bottom of the barrel. They don't touch the limits of the greatness of the glory of God's grace. Again, what we're saying here is that there are things about God and his goodness and love for us which are not inapprehensible. It's not that we cannot touch them, we cannot know them. What we're saying is they are incomprehensible. We cannot know everything about them. We cannot get a circle around them in our minds. God's wisdom and grace are knowable. 
but God's wisdom and grace are beyond what we can fully know and beyond what we can fully appreciate, and that's why they will always beyond, be beyond our ability to express. And I think that gives us a key, then, to what Paul is trying to tell us in 2 Corinthians 9.15 when he uses that paradoxical expression, the unspeakable gift of God. The Greek word for unspeakable in this particular text will be found in your lexicons to be defined as indescribable or inexpressible, but if you push, you'll find out that it's hard to define the word because it's really semantically unique. This apparently is the first time, for all we know, that it has appeared in, in the Greek language, not previously found. And one set of experts, Moulton and Milligan, suggest that Paul himself coined this term. But the term's not hard to understand when you look at it, you break it down. It's made up of two parts, what we call a, a, a privative or a negation at the beginning, and then a verb that is found in the New Testament a number of times. It means to tell something or relate something, to narrate something or to describe something. I'm going to give you a few examples of that so you know what Paul is now denying about the gift and generosity of God. What cannot be done is it cannot be told, he says. Look at Luke 8.39 as one good example of how the verb is used in the New Testament. Luke 8.39. Here Jesus says, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. That's the verb, to tell, to relate, to narrate what has taken place. Or another example, Acts 12.17. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described, he narrated, how the Lord had brought him out of prison. So the verb simply means to give an account, to narrate what has happened, to give a description. And what Paul tells us is God's gift cannot be fully narrated. It cannot be fully recounted or told in words. Look at one more text. I, I won't wear you out today, but Hebrews 11.32 uses the same verb that Paul puts in his compound expression in our text. Hebrews 11.32, there the author says, What more shall I say? I do not have time to recount, to narrate, to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and so forth. Here the author says, I cannot tell you the whole story. There's too much to say. Now, I want to suggest that is what Paul is getting at in 2 Corinthians 9, the 15th verse, when he says, Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. There's too much to say. I can't put it into words. Now, there are words that can be used. They are apprehensible. You can know the wisdom and grace and goodness of God, but you could never say enough about it. God's gift is beyond description because it's so good. Have you ever gotten something that's so good you can hardly tell people about it? Because you say, you're not going to get the sense of how happy I am. I, I, there's just no way I could say it. And yet you're talking about it all the time. That's what Paul's doing. He's saying, God is so good. He's given us a gift that is unspeakable. Now that you know what the unspeakable part means, what is the gift he's talking about? Before we go home, we probably should get that down as well, right? What is so unspeakable and generous 
that God has given us. The New Testament speaks of God's generosity and gift, I think, in three ways. They all run together, really, but we can distinguish a little bit between them. First of all, the New Testament speaks of God's gift in that Christ became poor to make us rich. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace or the generosity of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. In chapter 6, verse 10, Paul has described his own ministry with the same kind of language, interestingly enough. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 10, he talks about our being sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, poor, yet making many rich. <clears throat> and now, more importantly, it's not just Paul or other Christians who make others rich through their poverty, but Christ himself, who was impoverished, that we might become rich. And how are we rich? What is the gift God has given us? How has he enriched us? One thinks of the words of Jesus <clears throat> in Luke 12, verse 21. He tells the uh, story of the a uh, foolish man who was wealthy and built his barns and filled them up. And the night that he finally got everything filled up in his barns, he died. You fool, this night your soul is required of you. <clears throat> and Jesus goes on, and so is anyone who is not rich toward God. Do you understand the New Testament concept of being rich toward God? Probably not. Now, I can tell you about it, and I don't understand it well enough, because if I did, I wouldn't worry about the things of this world. <coughs> How are we rich toward God, according to the New Testament? In Ephesians, the third chapter, Paul talks about our being rich because of the grace and kindness that has been shown to us in Christ. Let me read that for you. Ephesians 3, verse 8, and then verses 16 and 17. Paul says, although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And then verses 16 and 17 describe, again, the unsearchable riches of Christ. <coughs> I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in the inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. <clears throat> and I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. What is God's unspeakable gift? It's the surpassing riches in Christ that gives us kindness, shows us kindness, gives us spiritual power, gives us faith, love, and fills us with all the fullness of God. In Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, God's gift is that we are saved by grace through faith. Paul says, you are saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves it being saved by grace through faith, it is the gift of God. That's God's gift. That he decided that he would save his people by grace through faith. 
what a gift to you. In Colossians 2.3, Paul talks about all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge being deposited in Christ. That's our riches before God. That is how we are wealthy toward God, in that we know Christ, who has all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, who grants us grace through faith for salvation. In 1 Corinthians 1, verses 4 and 5, Paul says that we are enriched in all knowledge and spiritual gifts in Christ. In Philippians 4, verse 19, he says that all of our needs are met by Christ. And that's why we can be content. And then he says something that's just really beyond my ability to communicate to you, I think. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 21 to 23, he says, For all things are yours. All the teachers in the church, everything in this world, the whole creation has been entrusted to you for the sake of Christ. So are we rich? Have we been given a gift by God? We certainly have. We have been made wealthy, spiritually wealthy, because of Christ impoverishing himself. But there's a second way in which the New Testament speaks of the gift of God. We can get, I think, a little more focused here. The Bible specifically speaks of God's gift being our justification in Christ. Look in your Bibles at Romans 5, verses 15 and 16. Romans 5 verses 15 and 16. But the gift, Walter, the gift, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, verse 16, he says, The gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. Christ's redemptive work in our behalf is not like the disobedience of Adam. In character and in effect, Paul says, they are much different. For the gift of God surpasses what the one man did. It's far greater, both in character and effect. Not to mention greater because it brings what is happy and joyous rather than that which, of course, is going to destroy. Rather than bringing condemnation, Christ brought justification that we might stand right in the presence of God. And that's his gift. What a gift. I'd have to preach the whole book of Romans to get the point across to you. But you know what a gift justification is? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What a gift. God didn't wait for us to do the first right thing and then say, okay, well, it looks like there's some hope for you. Now I'll help you out. God didn't wait until we cleaned up our act. He said, while you are my enemy." While you are sinners, while you are rebels, I loved you and gave up the most precious gift of all, my son. And that brings us to the third point. In the New Testament, the gift of God is not just generally the riches in Christ of God's grace or specifically the gift of justification, but above all, the gift is God gave himself. Probably the best-known verse in all the New Testament, certainly among evangelicals, 
God so loved the world that he gave. I think that should be enough to melt our cold hearts, that God loved the world. You know, Arminians get it wrong, sadly, because they think of the world here in, in the sense of how broad the world is. God loved a whole bunch of people because he loved the world. Except in John's terminology, John doesn't usually use the world that way. He thinks of the world as, well, in his epistle, he speaks of all that is in the world is what, the pride of life and the vainglory of life, uh, lust of the eyes. The world is the place of rebellion against God. The world is that which is sinful and depraved. And so when John says God so loved the world, what he's saying is God loved that which was utterly unlovable. God loved that which was the opposite of his own character. God loved the world. And he so loved the world, he didn't love like you and I do. We sometimes talk about, well, I love somebody, but you never do anything for them. Love is just kind of this gushy feeling inside you have, or worse. I mean, I guess gushy feelings are a step above just I'm tolerant of this person, so I love them. Love is a giving kind of thing. God so loved the world, this place of rebellion and depravity. God so loved that he gave. You see, the best part of all is what he gave. What was the gift? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. My children are precious to me. They become more precious as time goes on. I can't understand that because it always seems like I'm filled up with my love for them. I wish, you know, there was some way that I could express that to them. But then I, f I feel like that love grows and grows and grows. What would it take for me to give up one of my children? God has one unique son, and God so loved the world that he gave up that most precious relationship. He gave up his own son. In Ephesians 2, 7, Paul refers to the gift being Jesus himself. When he says, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. The greatest gift of all is that God gave up his own son. For those who really didn't deserve it, but deserved the very opposite. And he gave up his own son that we might become sons and daughters in him. He showed us that kind of richness in his grace, in his mercy, in his love for us. I've been studying Christian theology for a long time, and I'm supposed to be a theologian. I'm a little uncomfortable when people talk about me that way for a lot of reasons, but, you know, theologians are supposed to have things cased out, and all their outlines and have all the answers, right? But you know, the more and more and more that I study God's Word and the Gospel, and the more that He gives me opportunities to defend it, it seems like all the details that I'm learning, you know, spread outward, and yet the focus of my devotion and love gets narrower and narrower. I get to the place I'm very much like Paul, and I say, you know, the more I know about this, the more about the only thing I can say is thanks be to God 
that he gave a gift that's beyond words. Jesus, the very thought of thee with sweetness fills my breast, but sweeter far thy face to see and in thy presence rest. Nor voice can sing, nor heart can frame, nor can the memory find a sweeter sound than thy blessed name, O Savior of mankind. O hope of every contrite heart, O joy of all the meek, to those who fall, how kind thou art, how good to those who seek. But what to those who find? Ah, this nor tongue nor pen can show. The love of Jesus, what it is, none but his loved ones know. You go home this afternoon, I hope every once in a while you kind of fall into Paul's mode of thinking and just kind of forget everything else and say, thank God for your unspeakable gift. Let's pray. Lord, we hardly know what to pray because everything that we would say would be totally inadequate to express the love and gratitude that we have in our hearts for the blessing that is ours and the supreme gift that you have given in your own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. We love you, Jesus. And we ask that you would increase our love and our devotion. We ask that you would give us more adequate ways to, to tell you of that love and to glorify you and praise you individually and corporately as your people. Above all, what we want to tell you is what Paul himself said, that we thank you.